Our scripture lesson this evening is from Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 through 13. Let me introduce this uh, text and topic a moment. Uh, this Wednesday, as I've mentioned, we're going to hear Simonetta Carr uh, present on the importance of church history. And one of the obvious conclusions drawn from studying the past is that history including church history, is the story of trouble. It's the story of trouble. Just during the offertory, I flipped through uh, this book, Church History, and I see on page 8 a picture of a young slave uh, who was uh, killed by a raging bull in a Roman arena for her profession of faith in Christ. We wonder, was God in control that day? We have uh, other pictures of th uh, those who came to the Council of Chalcedon who had wounds on their bodies from previous uh, persecutions and similar uh, things could have been said about the Council of Nicaea. And there's story after story of hardship and trouble within the church and outside of the church, all of which may causes to ask the question, is God in control of everything? We sometimes simplify a description or definition of history by saying that it is his story. But is it a story that he is in complete control over? We wonder that, especially when even our stories are riddled with hardships and troubles. Is God in control of everything? Important question for us. And so I want to listen to God's word uh, from Isaiah 45 and then reflect on it this evening. Isaiah 45, God is speaking about his anointed one, King Cyrus, whom the Lord would use to uh, restore worship in Jerusalem through the reintroduction of Jews back to Jerusalem after the exile. And so historical event here, and the Lord addresses Cyrus as the king of history, king over Cyrus, and of course of all things. So be encouraged by these words. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. 
I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. One sixteenth century confession says this. Nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. Nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. In fact, not not one 16th century confession of faith says that, but truly all of them say that or something quite like it. Leading one Reformation scholar to say this, God's sovereignty, his freedom from external influence and control, his sovereignty is the marrow of doctrinal Calvinism. The marrow is is where our life comes from, right? The production of cells and the strength of our bodies. That marrow is God's sovereignty. It's confessed in every Reformation catechism and confession. It's the heartbeat of Reformed theology in many ways. But what we need to wrestle with as Reformed people is, especially when challenged on this point, or when we look at history and questions bombard our minds or tug at our souls, we have to ask this question, is God's sovereignty real? Is God truly in control of everything? And if so, how should God's absolute rule affect the way we live? Because surely if it's true, if God is in control of everything, then it must affect the way we think and feel and act at every point. And so we want to ask just two simple questions this evening. First of all, what does Scripture teach about God's sovereignty? And second, how should we respond to God's sovereignty? So what does Scripture teach about God's sovereignty? Obviously, in brief, we'll try to answer that question. If, if truly it's the heartbeat of the Scriptures, then the whole Bible teaches God's sovereignty. But in brief, what does... Scripture teach about God's sovereignty, and I think a, a very 
approachable way of answering this question is this. God's sovereignty, this idea that he controls everything, that he's free from external influence or control, the idea of sovereignty is manifested in his providence, in his actual interactions with this world, his absolute rule over everything that he has created. So when we're thinking about this theological theme of sovereignty, we can bring it down to the very accessible uh, sphere of providence, God's interaction in the world that he has made. And what the Bible teaches is this, the God who made everything remains completely active in this world. The God who made everything remains completely active in this world and active in a sovereign way. Here's how God describes his total dominion over everything again in Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. So what God is saying here, he's, he's first of all reminding us of creation, he says, I created light. And so in a sense, he formed darkness as well. He reserved some space and time in darkness, but he created light. I did that at the beginning. And I make peace and create calamity. So I was sovereign at the beginning, calling everything out of nothing. And I'm still sovereign in ordering the affairs of everything that I've made. We believe rightly that humans are the crown of creation but not even the most important person can outmaneuver God's providence. Sometimes we think we can. Cyrus thought he was a grand king, able to do anything that he wanted to do. God speaks of him as a pawn, moving him about to do his will. This is how Proverbs 21 verse 1 puts it. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. From the heart, the king makes great boasts. And does grand things, but it's all in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Jesus' argument for God's supremacy is impressive. Here's, here's Jesus' argument from Matthew 10, verse 30. If God governs, even the seemingly insignificant things like the hundreds of hairs that fall from our bodies every single day, which we don't even notice. If God governs those kinds of affairs, then surely he rules over the big events of history as well. Surely he is operative in the important affairs of your life. If God cares for a sparrow, which falls to the ground and no one notices, then is not God sovereign in your life as well? Nothing is outside of God's control. Nothing escapes his notice. Listen to Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Well, this is a grand theme, isn't it? And we can say it uh, with energy and with a smile upon our face. And if we lived in a sinless world, accepting God's sovereign providence, 
would be simple. We would never be troubled by the truth that God stands behind everything that happens because everything that would happen in a sinless world would be happy. And so we could say, yes, God is behind everything and it's all good and it's all easy and it's all wonderful and God has done it all. But we don't live in a sinless world. Providence is easy for us to think about and talk about when things go well. In fact, Christians are more likely to speak about providence after a desirable outcome, right? Wasn't it providential that this or that happened? When we say that, we're almost always talking about good things from our vantage point. You know, we, we rarely say, you know, wasn't it providential that we crashed the car and totaled it? And wasn't it providential that our house burned down? And we, we, don't, we don't tend to talk that way. We wrongly although perhaps just without our full thinking, attribute the good things to God's providence. But but what about when things go against us, as, as it seems to us from our vantage point? What about when we cry, when we're confused, when we're scared? Well, the Bible doesn't make exceptions for those things as if they're somehow outside of God's providence. Thank God for that, because if they were outside of God's providence, then we could never say that God is involved in this. God has somehow stepped out. He's taken a time out. He's, he's not present here. We would be disastrous to say that. What kind of a God could we, could we trust in if he's not there when we need him most? But Scripture teaches that even evil is not beyond God's control. We believe, as the Belgic Confession says, that God so restrains Satan and all our enemies that without his permission they cannot hurt us, but sometimes they do. Sometimes they do hurt us, and when they do, we need to be able to confess, God so willed it. This is surely one of the main themes that the book of Job teaches us, right? Satan is under the dominion of God. God gives him boundaries which he may not transgress, and yet within those boundaries, he causes deep heartache for God's children. We have to be able to confess that God sometimes ordains trouble. Amos 3.6 says this, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Right? Is, is, is God not involved when disaster comes into a city? Is he, was he somehow on, on break? Sleeping on vacation? Somehow it happened under outside of his control? No. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? No. We cannot say that God only ordains the things we like and not the things we dislike, if I could paraphrase Job's counsel to his wife in Job 2, verse 10. And so providence, the, the idea of it, of course, is, is rather simple and straightforward. God is in control of everything. But from our perspective, it's complicated 
because God is operating in a sinful world, sovereignly. And, and for that reason, it is vital for us as God's children to understand the purpose behind God's governing of both what we would call the good and the evil. We have to grapple with God's purpose. Not that we will always know the details of God's purpose, right? It's fair, as the psalmists do, to ask why questions. Why has God done this? We won't always be able to answer those questions minutely. But we must believe in the big purpose that God has revealed to us in his word. Or to put it differently, if God's dark providences seem blameworthy to us, it's because we're too short-sighted to appreciate his grand plan. Or if short-sighted sounds negative, uh, we're just incompetent to understand. Right? We don't have all the information. We can't see it all. We, we can't elevate ourselves to the position of God so that we can look down on the world and understand all that's going on and see all the intricately moving parts. We don't have vision that extends into the future. We barely can see into the past. We don't understand God's ends. When Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery... I think it's fair to say that no one but God could see the intended end. The brothers didn't see the intended end. They had their own schemes. They they, they were just hoping to get rid of this troublesome brother and maybe make some money at the same time. Joseph couldn't understand the plan. He didn't know where he was even going or what would happen to him when he got there. No one could see the intended end, which we learn, of course, from our God revealing to us that end in Genesis. Here it is. God was sending Joseph to Egypt, as he says in chapter 50, verse 20, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive by Joseph's shrewd stewardship. That's a marvelous plan, but painful along the way and confusing. I can only imagine Joseph saying, why, Lord? Why are you doing this to me? Or what is your purpose here? The medicine of God's providence in Joseph's life brought sweet salvation. Even if it tasted better at the start. And when I say at the start... (laughs) I mean, that's a long start, right? For many, many years that providence tasted bitter. It wasn't until many years later that he could finally begin to taste the sweetness of it. And we also can't assume that we'll be able to taste the sweetness of it in this life. Only later in the age to come when we're feasting on God's goodness and his mercy will we be able to see that God's plan has been altogether good every step of the way. God's sovereignty and the wicked acts of men are harmonized most shockingly, of course, at the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how the apostles put it in their preaching to the people who did it and who 
um, some of whom by now were beginning to grieve what they had done, but and some not, but this is how the apostles put it in their preaching in Acts 2, verse 23, and Acts 4, verse 28. God used the hands of lawless men to execute his definite plan to offer his precious son as payment for our sin. So what is the definite plan of God? The ultimate plan of God is to give Jesus as the payment for our sins, to cancel his just judgment against us. And God very definitely and purposefully used for the execution of that plan the hands of lawless men. Calvary is a dark place. Certainly in the moment, it's it's literally dark. God caused the sun to be hidden to emphasize the darkness of the wickedness being executed at that moment. But now we look back and we say, Calvary is, is the sweetest place. It's the most beautiful thing that the Lord has done. And so what we need to believe is that God, as Ephesians 1.11 says, works all things according to his holy will. That means that his will is separate from ours, different than ours, distinct from the thinking and the logic and the ways of humans, and that his ways are right. They're holy. They're, they're, his, his ways, God in his ways is incapable of sinning of doing the wrong thing. And so, so God can use any means toward the end of his good plan and the achievement of his glory and the benefit of the church. That's why uh, I didn't want to interject in the reading of Scripture, but I, I love how the Lord puts it in Isaiah 45, verse 4, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I called you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. So what God is saying is, for the sake of the church, then, known by the name of uh, Jacob and Israel, now uh, known as the church of Jesus Christ, for which God has shed his blood, God does all of the things that he does for the sake of the church. Even if we don't understand why he's doing what he's doing at the time. And so for believers, we, we, we know that his holy will always results in our good. We just find ourselves at the point in God's patient timeline where what God is doing doesn't always feel good, like medicine or like discipline, like surgery, like any number of things that must be done for a good end but without the full understanding of those involved. So this is a sketch of how we should understand God's sovereignty. Is God in control of all things? Yes. He's in control of all things. How should we respond to God's sovereignty? I want to set before us six applications that can help us uh, whether the providence, 
the expression of God's sovereignty that we're dealing with at the moment seems good or bad to us. Number one, respond to God's providence with reverence. Respond to God's providence with reverence. Especially hard providences tempt us to curse God. Um, and, And I think curse God can mean a lot of different things, right? Job's wife sensed God's hand in their tragedy, but she failed to revere his sovereign activity. And so she says to her husband, curse God and die. We maybe don't think about cursing God, you know, with, with our fists shaking up heavenward. But there are many ways in which we may fail to reverence God, especially in times of dark providence. But it's an opportunity for us to reverence him. And so her husband asks a critical question for us as well. Shall we accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And and perhaps up to this point, Job really didn't understand adversity. He he understood good. (laughs) He he was a wealthy man, had a, a thriving family. He understood the good of God. He understood that aspect of God's providence. But his understanding of God's providence was inadequate. It was incomplete by way of personal experience. Now he's able to say, shall we not accept all of this from God? Everything that he sends us? And when when facing this God-ordained tragedy, Scripture tells us, Job worshipped. So we, this, this is not to put a, a cheerful gloss on tragedy or hardships. The book of uh, Job doesn't allow that. But it does teach us right from the start that an important, vital response to God's providence is to revere God, to say, the Lord has done this, he has given, he has taken away, and his name should be blessed by us. Revere God's providence. Second, respond to God's providence with trust. If you know Christ as Savior, if you know the Spirit as your comforter, if you know God as Father, then you can trust His divine providence. Right? You don't have to understand it. You don't have to comprehend it. Even when you feel inclined to question God, you can trust him because you know that he's for you and he's able to bring about for you his good purposes. You believe, don't you, as a Christian, that God is good. I mean, it's fundamental. If God isn't good, then who is he? He's good. His will is holy, Psalm 5, verse 4 says. And and so we we believe that a good father will never cast away his children. An evil father will, and we witness that, but a good father will never cast away his children. No hard providence could possibly divert you from God's loving plan for your life. He's committed to your good. And he sealed that commitment with the precious blood of his dear son. 
the sovereign God who values his children is always in full command. Psalm 121 says he never slumbers. He never sleeps. He's never uh, away when he ought to be present. And so we can rest in him because he doesn't rest. He doesn't sleep. He's never distracted. Respond to God's providence with trust. Third, respond to God's providence with humility. We are all tempted to question how God should have managed his business. That's just natural, right? We do that in the affairs of of people, even people wiser than us, even, you know, you watch even a a silly sporting event and you see what the quarterback did in such a situation or the play that the coach called and you say, what a stupid play. Why did he do that? I wouldn't have done that if I was in that situation. We're inclined to question the decisions even of people who are far more skilled and experienced than we are. We're tempted to do that with God too. We need to be humble. Let's not be like young children assuming the doctor is cruel for administering that shot. What a cruel man a, a child might think. No, he's, he's, he's doing the right thing, hopefully. Be humble. When Job came to recognize that he was but a vapor which vanishes upon appearing He admitted to God, recorded in chapter 42, verse 3, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I I did not know that. And so as students of Christ, we should claim to know only what he has revealed to us in his word and acknowledge our ignorance in hidden matters and recognize that um, the hidden matters are the vast preponderance of the things that God is about and what he's doing. We know a sliver of what God has given. It's, It's amazing. The book that we call the Bible is a big book. It says a lot to us about who God is and what he's doing, but it's it's almost nothing compared to everything that God knows and everything that he's doing. Remember, the the Apostle John said, if if we even wrote down everything that could be said about Jesus, the world couldn't contain the books. And so we have four Gospels, and we have other details thrown in in the epistles and in the book of Acts and uh, Revelation. But we we know comparatively little about God's ways. And so we should... Know what God has revealed to us and remain trustfully ignorant and humble regarding the rest. Fourth, respond to God's providence with self-examination. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, God sometimes sovereignly troubles his children to discover unto them or to reveal to them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin. Now, this is dealing specifically with God leading us into um, God's leading even in our own failures. 
But this is true for all providence. It's an opportunity for us to examine ourselves, not um, assuming that we are to blame in hard providences, but to ask questions, to learn about ourselves more, to explore parts of ourselves that we, up to this point, weren't interested in exploring, as Job had to. Hard times, in other words, should not lead us to question God's character, but our character. Respond to God's providence with self-examination. Fifth, respond to God's providence with action. Now, of course, all the things that we've been uh, talking about are actions in one way or another, and there'll be one more action in just a moment. But what I mean by this is someone might ask, if God is in control of everything, then why do anything? Right? If God is in control, if he's doing his sovereign will, then why do I do anything? Why do I have to act at all? And the answer is because God appoints not only the ends, but also the means to the ends, the way that we get to the ends. He appoints his, his revealed will to us, calls us to act, to do, to never take um, a passive position relative to God's sovereignty. Say, well, there's nothing I can do. God is sovereign. I'll just have to see what God is going to do here. Now, we saw an example of that, didn't we? When we were studying the book of Acts, God promised that no one would die on Paul's ship that was being wrecked. Well, that's a sure thing, right? There, there is no way that promise is going to fail because God has declared it. He's going to make sure that happens. But he also required that everyone must stay with the ship in order to be saved. So the end is the salvation of those on the ship. The means to that end is the faithful obedience of those on the ship. Divine sovereignty demands human activity. Uh, different kinds of activities are demanded in different moments, but we may never be inactive because of God's, uh, because of God's sovereignty. And then finally, respond to God's providence with adoration, with worship. Has God provided for your needs? Have the hardships that he has sent helped you conform to Christ? Has his providence mystified you? And we could ask a million more questions. And, and whatever the answer, what, it, what, what those questions reveal is that God has done something in your life with his sovereign work. The result is that we should worship him. Thinking of God's providence, we should say with Paul in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. His ways are uh, past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it shall be repaid to him? Right, so these are questions about God's sovereignty and his holy will so far beyond ours. And the result of these questions is this, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. You see what Paul is doing here? He's pondering God's sovereignty and allowing that to lead him to worship, to magnify the greatness of God. The sovereignty of God is mysterious. But it is meant to be 
for our comfort. It is revealed to us for our comfort. God would be sovereign even if he never revealed his sovereignty to us. He would do everything that he wanted to do even if he never told us that he was doing everything he wanted to do. But he's told us to comfort us, to comfort those who have cast themselves at his mercy. You may uh, know that the English pilgrims, uh, when they uh, left to come to America, actually left from uh, by way of Holland through England to come here, they had had a, uh, a pastor before leaving here named John Robinson who served them in England and also in Holland. And John Robinson wasn't going with his pilgrim congregation immediately, and so he wrote a letter to them for their encouragement, a lengthy letter, and it ends with these words. He who hath made the heavens and the earth Here's an important one. The sea, which these people would be crossing, with very little promise of success of getting to the other side, but God made it, the sea and all rivers of waters, and whose providence is over all his works, especially over all his dear children for good, guide and guard you in your ways, as inwardly by his Spirit, so outwardly by the hand of his power. Their pastor sent them with a blessing, reminding them of God's providence, of his sovereignty, that the creator of the seas and the dry ground and all of the rest is continuing to look out for his children. Now, based on the pilgrim's rough first year, a, a critical onlooker might wonder if this prayer had in fact failed. It was a rough year. Several people died on the way, and half the people died during the first year. Where was God's providence? But those inwardly guided by God's Spirit know that the sovereign God is in control of everything and always acts in the best interests of those He loves. And so it's interesting to me that as uh, the survivors of that first year uh, at Plymouth send reports back to England to encourage others to come join them, they constantly are citing God's providence yeah, after a terrible year. But God has been good to us. He's preserved us in so many ways, and he's been acting through it all. In return for this knowledge, God's children love him for it for it. God is in control of everything, and especially in a fallen world, this is a comforting truth for those who call God Father. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, you are sovereign. We believe that even as we turn the pages of church history and teach our children about martyrs who, for no other reason than confessing the name of Christ, were persecuted terribly. We believe that you've been sovereign through all the ages, even in the, the schisms of the church and the uh, troubles in our own life. And we love you for it because we believe that you are good and you are doing your holy will. 
And so we pray that you would impress this doctrine upon us and comfort us by it and lead us into more faithful actions in response to it. Bless again this presentation that we look forward to on Wednesday, uh, just a glimpse of why the study of the history of the church is so important for students of God's sovereignty and providence. In your name we pray, amen.